Have you ever wondered why Christians so often sing, like we did just a few minutes ago in Christ alone, about Jesus' blood? Kind of a strange thing to sing about, isn't it? Not simply the cross, not simply his death, but blood. We did it this morning. We did it twice last week. First in an old hymn. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Right? And then we sang a newer chorus that went, By his blood and in his name, in his freedom I am free. And I grew up in the South where my dad's favorite song was, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. And one of my favorites, we get to sing it later on today, by a Baptist minister in the late 1800s, inspired by Hebrews chapter 9, is, what can wash away my sin? Not the blood of Jesus. We Bible-believing Christians, as Jonathan called us two weeks ago, do not simply recognize the blood of Jesus. We do not simply refer on occasion to the blood of Jesus. We sing about the blood of Jesus. We glory in the blood of Jesus. That is, in a spirit of worship, we declare his worth to each other and we praise him for his greatness in light of his, strange thing, blood. We worship him with a topic that otherwise we might think of as morbid and avoid. Have you ever stopped to ask why? Why the blood talk? What is it about Jesus' blood that makes us sing? We need to know this. How does the blood work? What does it do? If someone asks you, hey, you're Christian. You guys talk about blood a lot, Jesus' blood. How does it work? How would you respond to that? Would you be at a loss to explain it? As well as any passage in all the Bible, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 22, explains the power of the blood. In one of the densest and most complex and richest chapters in all the Bible, we learn why it was necessary for Jesus to die. And not just die, but shed his blood. Blood needed to be shed unto death. You might say this sermon is an attempt to explain why we sing about the blood. All right, so for the next few minutes, that's what we're going to do from Hebrews 9, explain why we sing about Jesus' blood. Not just talk, sing. 
We worship him in light of his precious blood, as 1 Peter 1.19 calls it. And we should know why. We saw last week in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, those verses rehearse the setup of the old covenant tabernacle related to this day of atonement, the one day of the year the priest goes in to the Holy of Holies to make atonement for himself and the people. We saw that. We saw there for the first time in verse 7 the essential place that blood plays in the whole setup of the covenant. And then in verses 11 to 14, which is the high point of Hebrews chapter 10 to chapters 8 to 10, we saw there a summary of the achievement of Christ at the cross in contrast to the old covenant system. In the first covenant, the flawed, imperfect high priests, plural, served in an earthly tent with animal blood according to the law, which temporarily purified the flesh. Jesus, the great high priest, who's perfect, entered heaven itself by means of his own blood, offered willingly, which works eternally for the purification inside and out of the soul. Which brings us to verse 15 and the word therefore. In light of these marked contrasts between the Old Covenant and Jesus and the superiorities of Jesus, the terms of arrangement for how sinners relate to the Holy God must be different. Jesus, Hebrews says, mediates a new covenant. Not renewed, not added on, not extending the previous arrangement with some adjustments and upgrades. New. New administration, a new way for sinful humans to relate to the holy God. And so now in verses 15 to 22, Hebrews will show us in terms of the covenant, in covenantal terms, why Jesus had to die. That is, why it was necessary for him to shed sacrificial blood. Blood, we said, was introduced for the first time in verse 7. Blood appears four more times in verses 12 to 14, then six more times in verses 18 to 22. That is what this passage is about. Then again in verse 25, and then four times in verses 15 to 17, there's a reference to death. And it's not a reference to natural death. It's not a reference to bloodless death. It is a reference to sacrificial, bloody death. And death, in verses 15 to 17, is essentially synonymous with blood in the context of Hebrews chapter 9. That's what blood symbolizes here, sacrificial death. Or, put it this way, blood symbolizes life taken sacrificially. The death in view is not a natural bloodless death. It's not natural causes. 
The blood in view represents life that has been violently taken, unnaturally, ahead of time, as a sacrifice. One party, in the Old Covenant, it's animals. One party bleeds to the point of death in order to stand in for another party who deserved death, but now, because of the sacrifice, gets to continue to live. That's the way the blood works. By God's provision. The reason this matters in the context of a covenant with God is because of human sin. We have all disobeyed and dishonored the infinitely valuable God. And our offenses, however small they seem to us, are infinitely great because they are offenses against His value. So verse 14 mentions dead works. If you wonder what that phrase is, this is not Paul, this is not Romans, it's not Galatians. We're not talking about people doing works to earn the way to salvation. Dead works in verse 14 are acts that deserve and lead to death because they have been perpetrated against the infinitely valuable God. So, God's people and all humans deserve death for our sin. And in order for God to draw near to His people and for His people to draw near to Him in a covenant relationship, of ongoing life, how can they have life when they deserve death? Their sin must be addressed. Our sin must be addressed. Under the terms of the old covenant, God made provision for the sins of his people through animal blood that was violently and sacrificially taken to stand in temporarily to hold back his righteous judgment, and all the while anticipating a final reckoning for sin that was to come. And so, as, as we saw in Leviticus, so good that we had a little bit of quick time in Leviticus last fall to set up Hebrews. We saw over and over in Leviticus, blood is everywhere in Leviticus, almost 100 times in chapters 1 to 20 of Leviticus. And now in Hebrews 9, there is blood and sacrificial death all the way through verses 12 to 22. That's what this is about, which leads us to ask, what does the blood do? Or you might put it this way, how does the cross work? You know how the cross works? What is the blood of the covenant for? There are at least three answers to that question in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 22. So what does the blood do? Number one, Jesus' blood redeems from former sins. This is verse 15. His blood redeems from former sins. Remember the audience, the original audience for Hebrews. These are Greek-speaking Jews. They grew up in the Jewish faith, and they came to embrace Jesus as their Messiah, but now they are becoming sluggish in their faith, chapter 5 said. 
The passing years and the ever-present pull of the world has made them spiritually dull. Is that the case for you? They are tempted to simply give in to their world's pressures and just reacclimate themselves to Jewish life apart from Jesus. That was their pressure. And so Hebrews appeals to them again and again that Jesus and his priesthood and his sacrifice and his covenant are better, better. It's an appeal to what's better. And besides, you can't actually go back there anymore anyway. Because with the coming of Christ, the old covenant has come to its planned fulfillment. And it is no longer valid. That's where he's going to end this great section from chapter 8, verse 3, all the way to 10, 18, about the sacrifice of the cross. He's going to end it in verse 18 by saying that there is no longer any offering for sin in the old covenant. You can't go back there. In verse 15, we see that Hebrews focus on Jews, that's his audience, as those who are called to live under the covenant. We see that focus here in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death. Remember, this chapter is all about sacrificial death. It's not a death of natural cause. No sacrifice here. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Hebrews' audience needs to know this. They need to know how the new covenant relates to the old covenant that they grew up under. They need to know about their status related to any ongoing obligations with that former covenant. And so verse 15 says that Jesus' death, his sacrificial blood, redeems them from any debt of obligation they once had under the old covenant. The old arrangement is done. You owe it nothing further, he says. But what about Gentiles? I mean, what about us here? On the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, most of us, if not all, are just totally Gentile. If Jesus' death redeems from transgressions committed under the first covenant, how does his blood relate to those of us who never lived under the first covenant? Does his blood just take care of the first covenant? What about us? Well, Gentiles. In one sense, the rest of the sermon is about Gentiles. But also, right here in verse 15, notice that phrase, those who are called. That's your foot in the door. Those who are called. This is where the Gentiles come in. The death of Christ not only redeems Jews, but also Gentiles. So we get some help from Paul. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, that's what Hebrews is doing, and also to the Gentiles, which is Paul's particular calling. And twice 
in Paul's letters, when he talks about those who are called, do you want to know what's the theology of those who are called? Twice, Paul makes very clear that when he says called, he means not only Jews, also Gentiles. He does that in 1 Corinthians 1.24 and in Romans 9.24. Same thing, both places. Called, Jew, Gentile. Now, Hebrews has his particular Jewish audience in view, but when he mentions those who are called, that's our window. Romans, the book of Romans, you might say, explains the gospel to Romans, to Gentiles, to Greeks, with special reference to Roman legal categories of justice and righteousness. And meanwhile, Hebrews explains the gospel to, guess who? Hebrews, to Jews, with special reference to Hebrew cultic categories of holiness and purification, which is why many of us Gentiles find Romans easier to understand. Western Reformed Christians often know Romans, have their theology built on Romans, which is a good thing. We find Romans easier to understand. We don't understand Leviticus very well, and the sacrificial system, and the priests and sacrifices and blood is also foreign to us, which is why Hebrews is so valuable to us Gentiles. While we don't skip over this letter, we try to learn from it in 2023 at Cities Church. As we get to know Hebrews, we get to know our gospel in multiple dimensions, not only Gentile Roman categories, but also Jewish Levitical terms. Also, for us Gentiles, Romans 3.19 says something really similar to Hebrews 9.15. I I can't move on without making the connection. Hebrews 9.15, Romans 3.19, about how God's revelation to the Jews relates to the Gentiles. Let me read to you Romans 3.19. Whatever the law, that is the old covenant, the law, that's what he talks about. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, the Jews. So that, here's a surprise, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. It's very strange, isn't it? What the old covenant says, it says to those who are under the old covenant that every mouth in the whole world may be held accountable to God. God speaking in and through the law, the old covenant, is relevant to us Gentiles, not as our covenant, but as our scripture to stop our mouths of self-defense and to hold us accountable to our creator. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, says Romans 3, 2, that it might might be made clear to all Jew and Gentile that we are under sin, Romans 3, 9. Romans and Hebrews are well-named. Romans explains to Gentiles why Jesus had to die. And Hebrews explains to Jews and Gentiles with them why Jesus had to die. 
And God's first covenant with Jews not only showed them their sinfulness and their need for Christ's final atoning sacrifice, but Gentiles also. That's what we see in Hebrews 9. There's a kind of organic relationship between what God specifically requires of his first covenant people and the accountability of all humans, Jew and Gentile, to the God who made them. So what does the blood of the new covenant do? First, Jesus' blood redeems from former sins. Jew first, also Gentile. Number two, Jesus' blood enacts a new covenant. This is verses 16 to 20. These are very difficult verses. Jesus' blood enacts a new covenant. Very difficult for Gentiles. The blood of Christ not only releases Jewish and Gentile sinners from their former sins, but it also enacts a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, new terms, a new relationship, new arrangements for that relationship with God. The ending of the old arrangement took sacrificial blood, and now the inaugurating of a new arrangement takes sacrificial blood. That's mainly what Hebrews is doing in these verses, is showing the connection between Jesus' sacrificial death and the enacting or inaugurating or beginning of a new arrangement for how to relate to God called the new covenant. Now, verses 16 to 17 are really difficult. Let me explain why. Verse 15 mentions an inheritance. And then verses 16 and 17 mention death. And so it's quite natural for Gentile commentators and translations to think that Hebrews here jumps from talking about Hebrew covenants to talking about a Greco-Roman last will and testament. Inheritance, death, oh, it must be a will. Somebody dies and so passes along because they had a will. And you see, our beloved ESV has the word will in verses 16 to 17. And I think that's a mistake. And a growing number of Hebrews scholars do as well, especially in the last generation. So before I read verses 16 and 17, let me very quickly just list off for you five reasons that I don't think it should be will here, but covenant. Very quickly, I'll give you the five reasons, then I'll give you my translation of these verses, then I'll give you the the payoff, all right? I know it's complicated, it's difficult, it may not make sense altogether the first time, but I'll give you the clear payoff at the end, all right? Here's five quick reasons it should be covenant in verses 16 and 17 and not will. Number one, verse 15 mentions the new and first covenants. Verse 18 mentions the first covenant. Chapters 7 to 9 have clearly been talking about a Hebrew covenant, the old covenant, not a Roman will. Hebrews uses the word for covenant 17 times in chapter 7 to 13, and every other time it clearly means covenant. Everywhere else in the New Testament, 
It's the same. Number two, it is not true that a will takes effect at death. A will takes effect as soon as it's made. It is executed at death or after death, but only because it took effect previously. However, a Hebraic covenant, as we see in Exodus 24, which is exactly where Hebrews goes next in the passage, a Hebrew covenant takes effect at death, namely the death of sacrificial victims in a covenant ratifying ceremony. That's what Exodus 24 is, and that's the next thing Hebrews is going to say. Number three, the word behind death in verse 17 is plural. Verse 16 mentions the one who made it. That's a singular in verse 16. But then verse 17 references plural deaths, which refer not to the death of the person who made the will and dies a perhaps natural death, but it refers to the sacrificial victims that were cut, that bled, that died for the cutting of the covenant. That's the language all throughout the Old Testament, to cut a covenant because you shed blood to inaugurate a covenant. It's part of the covenant ratifying ceremony. Number four, the syntax and logical flow of verses 15 to 17 does not work if the, if the meaning of the Greek word switches from Hebraic covenant to Greco-Roman will and back. It's a play on words at best. The passage is very tightly knit together. Four is at the beginning of verse 16. And then again at the beginning of verse 17. And then verse 18 says, therefore, it is all tied tightly together. Then finally, number five, the word for established in verse 16 would be better translated as carried forward or brought forward. This is sacrificial language. This is language used in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, sacrificial language. The death owed by a sinful people who are making a covenant with God is brought forward in the sacrificial victim's blood to make purification for sins so that sinners might enter into a covenant of life with God. All right, can say more. Let that be it for now. So let me give you a, uh, a redone version of verses 16 to 20. Add a little extrapolation to hopefully make it make more sense. You can just listen. It might be confusing to look at the ESV while I do this. Or you could. You can see how much of this overlaps. Here's a translation accounting for will as Hebrew covenant rather than will. All right, verses 16 to 20. Four, where a covenant with God is involved, the death of the one who made it, that's the people, must be brought forward in the sacrifices. Four, a covenant takes effect only with the death of the sacrificial victims, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it and deserves death because of his sin still lives. Therefore, because of human sin, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. That's Exodus 24. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, 
to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. All right, I know it's complicated. It's a lot to take in at once. Let me give you the payoff, all right? Here it is. Jesus' blood not only redeems us from the death penalty of our former sins, but his blood provides purification from sin to enact a new covenant relationship of life with God. Former sins must be dealt with, but also the ongoing sinful condition of our hearts if we are to enter into a covenant relationship with God. And Jesus' blood makes it possible. It is the covenant ratifying blood. So when Moses says in Exodus 24, at the inauguration of the old covenant, this is the blood of the covenant, what he means is at least this. It may have multiple meanings. It probably has multiple meanings. We know this in wedding ceremonies. People do unity candle or pour sand together, and it's like, what's the meaning of that? Well, I can say several meanings of that. Like in ceremonial contexts, rites, rituals have multiple meanings. But as far as Hebrews 9 is concerned, the meaning of the covenant ratifying blood is this. Forgiveness of sins. That's what verse 22 says. It, I, know it's, I know it's a complicated passage. Verse, if you gotta, you gotta square it up with verse 22. Verse 22 makes sense of it all and summarizes it all. God's arrangement is that sacrificial blood purifies sinners so that they can enter into communion with him. That's what the blood of the covenant accomplishes. So Jesus' blood redeems from former sins and it enacts a new covenant. And then finally, Jesus' blood upholds the new covenant. This is verses 21 and 22. His blood upholds the new covenant. Just as sacrificial blood enacted the old covenant and the old covenant endured and operated on sacrificial blood at every turn, Exodus 24 was not the end of the blood. It was just the beginning. So Jesus' blood not only enacts a new covenant, but sustains it, upholds it, maintains it, keeps it going. Hebrews hints at this all throughout chapter 9 by expanding his focus from that inaugurating event of the Old Covenant in Exodus 24 to include also the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 that kept the covenant going with an annual sacrifice. We're going to see that next week in verses 23 to 28. Max will show us the Day of Atonement focus of the priests entering into the presence of God. Hebrews is expanding the focus here from Exodus 24, inauguration, to Leviticus 16 that keeps the covenant going. And blood 
is what does it in both contexts because the people are sinful. Look at verses 21 to 22. And in the same way, Moses sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, not just the people, but the tent and all the vessels. And then comes the sweeping claim of verse 22. In the Old Covenant, almost everything, he says, is purified with blood, which will lead us to the Day of Atonement, verses 23 to 28. So Jesus not only inaugurates a new covenant, as verse 15 says, he mediates it. He sticks around to make sure it happens. And his blood does the work. His blood is for all time, says Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. By a single sacrifice, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. To be clear, Hebrews 9.22 states the underlying point of this otherwise complicated passage. Both the inaugurating and the maintaining of the new covenant with the holy God deal with the sins of the people. So, according to Hebrews chapter 9, what does Jesus' blood do? What is the blood of the covenant? What's its function? Number one, it redeems from former sins. For Jews, cancels every obligation to the first covenant and redeems from Gentile former sins. Number two, it enacts a new covenant relationship with God. Number three, it upholds the new covenant for all time. And all that because the sacrificial blood of Jesus deals with or puts away or forgives our sin. Now, there's at least one more reason in this chapter, one more function in this chapter of Jesus' blood, but it's outside our passage. I told you three reasons in verses 15 to 22, but I can't help ending with this, and especially on a Sunday when we commission out a church called Exalting Christ. Look at verse 12. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for us. So what does it mean that Jesus entered into heaven by means of his own blood? What it does not mean is that this high priest needed blood to cleanse from sin. That's an important contrast with the old covenant. The old high priests entered the Holy of Holies once a year, says verse 7, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But not Jesus. Jesus has no sin. 
The blood as a means of his entrance is not to deal with his sin. So then what is the function of his blood? How does he enter the presence of God by means of his own blood? The answer is clarified in the great doxology of Hebrews. In our family, we love calling this the shepherd blessing. You got the priest blessing in Numbers 4, may God bless you and keep you. You got the shepherd blessing in Hebrews 13. My daughters will say, Daddy, do the shepherd blessing tonight. This is the shepherd blessing. The question we want to answer here is, what does the blood of the covenant do? That's blood of the covenant. It's mentioned in Hebrews 13. What does the blood of the covenant do? Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, since I have already violated my rule of not referring to Greek in a sermon, let's talk about this phrase, in the blood of the eternal covenant. The Greek shows that it modifies the word great. So important. It modifies the word great. So here's a literal translation of Hebrews 13, 20. Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep, the great one in the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus. So in between calling him shepherd of the sheep and saying, our Lord Jesus, he says, great in the blood of the covenant. He's great because of what he did at the cross in shedding his blood. The blood Jesus shed, the blood of the eternal covenant is a mark of his greatness. It is an achievement that he shed his blood. It didn't just happen to him. He happened to the cross. It is the greatest achievement in the history of the world, and it merits reward. And so chapter 9, verse 12 says, he entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood. Jesus' blood not only gets the job done, it shows us his greatness and his worth. His sacrificial blood not only deals with our sins, but it shows us the greatness of the one for whom our hearts long. We not only receive forgiveness, we worship. We not only thank him for his blood, we praise the one whose very greatness we see in the shedding of his blood for us. And so, we sing about his blood. As we come to the table, we find sweet confirmation for the meaning of the blood of the covenant. Luke, in talking about the Last Supper, talks about as the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. And Matthew 
says this covenant in his blood is for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the blood does. It forgives the sins of those who deserve death because the perfect sacrifice of Christ has been put in their place. Former sins, forgiven. A new covenant, inaugurated and sustained by his blood. And in the blood of the eternal covenant, we see his greatness. The blood of the covenant exalts Christ. Christ. 